This is an ABC podcast. Snaphole Beverly, reinstate, stop everything's random and semi-regular segment from five years ago, Internet Wormhole. What, Ben? We have moved on from then. Y- yes or no? It's a simple question. Well, then no, then. No. The results are in. The results are in. 51.8% of people say yes. Internet wormhole will be reinstated. Vox Populi, Vox Dei. Do you even know what that means? This no. poll is BS. Stop <laughs> everything. Culture moves fast, as fast as fake news, so it's time to stop everything. And the people may have spoken in Latin, but maybe have you considered, like the former US President Donald Trump, that segment, Internet Wormhole, has no interest in returning? Have you, Benjamin Law? Have you thought of that? That's a throwback from such a long time ago, isn't it? You know, culture moves fast, but time is elastic, Beverly. Time is a circle. And who says that a long forgotten segment that many of us don't even remember can't come back as long as we, like Elon Musk, use the very scientific method of a Twitter poll. I mean, I remember it. I didn't hate it. I liked it. It's just the time has passed. I don't feel like we need to trample on our history, Benjamin. We just can move forward from time our Time has moved on. The show has moved on. Look, a Twitter poll is why Donald Trump's account is back on the platform. There's no reason why we can't be using a Twitter poll to inform how our show works from now on. 51.8% of Musk's followers said Trump should be back on the platform, and just like a fungus sprouting out of the dirt, here he is. Can I make a confession? Mm. I voted in that poll and I voted no. Oh, I thought you were about to say I voted in that poll and you voted yes, which which would have flared my nostrils. (laughs) (laughs) I just thought Elon Musk definitely is going to treat this poll as the word of law or the word of God, so I better do my part for democracy in your finger quotes and join the conversation in the public square. So I did. That's not a bad admission to make. Elon Musk's poll is not scientifically accurate. I actually voted in that poll and I voted no as well. Okay, good. I, was like, but, I didn't know how you were going to go there. Yeah, we're keeping both of ourselves on the edge of our seats. But in fairness to us, we didn't actually know that that poll would have consequences. I didn't know. Did you? I had a very strong inkling given the owner's previous statements on polls. I just thought, oh yeah, this is not just for a lark. This is to actually make a decision. But such is the wildness of this website. What are we in now? Week three of the Week Death three Watch? Week three of Twitter Death Watch. Watching the bird site spiral into oblivion or evolve into something else like some mutated Pokemon. Look, let's return to Twitter Death Watch really, really soon. But later in the show, we're going to have some really great conversations. You're talking to Crew Boylan, star of Australian feature film Seriously Red. And then later, you're going to be talking about one of the most exciting expansions of one of the biggest cinematic universes out there, Andor, which is the spin-off of Star Wars that everyone's talking about. And Starring the watching. fantastic, lovely, handsome, talented Diego Luna. Itu mama tambien, yeah. Ah, Diego Luna. But for now, yes, week three of Stop Everything's Twitter Death Watch. It's a race to see whether the website will die before the end of our natural programming year, Benjamin. And right now it's neck and neck, anybody's game. Some interesting reinstatements, as we said before. Donald Trump got Mm -hmm. voted back in. He said he had no interest in returning. I'm a little confused. So 
He has an account, Ben, but he's not using it. Okay, so his Twitter account, suspended after fomenting the Capitol riots, has now returned. And you can follow and interact with Donald Trump's Twitter account, but he's not interacting with it. Since his return, his account has actually grown. But what's interesting about the dynamic is now Donald Trump owns Truth Social, this alternative Twitter platform, and has poured so much money into it. So Donald Trump is really in this interesting situation where, of course, he would really, really want to return to the bird side and now has the capacity to, but he has financial stakes elsewhere and has publicly criticised Elon Musk and said, no, like Twitter seems to have a lot of problems. (laughs) Alien versus predator situation right now. (laughs) Wow. That's extraordinary. (laughs) Yeah. He's not the only person to return to the platform. So let's just do a bit of a roll call, shall we, in terms of people who it's are It's a back real fool's gallery Twitter. over here. It really is. We talked about Kanye West, also known as Ye. His account was suspended for anti-Semitic posts. He came back this weekend. Musk said it was not his decision. And Ye followed up with a tweet that simply said, Shalom, smiley face emoji. So basically a troll there for Jewish followers. It's a dog whistle. It's a total dog whistle. Marjorie Taylor Greene, the controversial US Congresswoman and conspiracy theory advocate, has been reinstated. She was suspended for spreading COVID misinformation. The Babylon Bee, which is a right-wing satire and transphobic site, they were kicked off for nominating Rachel Levine, a prominent transgender US government official, as Man of the Year, so pretty dank stuff. And they're back... Jordan Peterson's back, the Canadian psychologist and self-help author, after he dead-named and attacked trans actor Elliot Page. But on the other hand, Kathy Griffin, who was suspended for impersonating Elon Musk, she's also back after <laughs> Twitter suspended her because Elon Musk doesn't understand or appreciate parody. I suppose we know, though, where the low bar falls because he has drawn the line at Alex Jones of InfoWars. This Mm -hmm. is the conspiracy theorist, huge online following. He pushed a very harmful conspiracy theory that the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting in 2012, in which 20 children and six educators were killed, was a hoax. Horrific. And has been ordered by a U.S. court to pay more than $1.4 billion to the families of the victims of Sandy Hook for spreading that hoax. So Elon Musk has drawn the line there. I think that's pretty cold comfort. And the line for him in this case with Alec Jones is quite personal. Elon Musk tweeted, My firstborn child died in my arms. I felt his last heartbeat. I have no mercy for anyone who would use the deaths of children for gain, politics or fame. So that's quite, I think, a noble thing to state publicly. But at the same time, I also think Donald Trump is back on. You'll let him back on. And five people died in those capital riots. Not to mention a total undermining of democratic democracy. Neo-Nazis are now on the rise because Elon Musk has made the lines of what's acceptable on Twitter more elastic. And as a result, the Centre for Countering Digital Hate, which tracks hate speech on Twitter, has looked at mentions of slurs to do with race, to do with gender, to do with sexuality, to do with Jewishness, to do with disability. And all of these slurs have gone up by tens of thousands in some cases since Elon Musk has taken control over the company. 
Sure, because the content people who actually are employed to take care of this kind of stuff are gone. And I think anecdotally, I can see visually in the feeds that I look at, a lot more hate speech and abuse is happening. Elon Musk has actually said in October he'd formed this content moderation council. I don't know if you remember that, but it sounded like he was going to form this Jedi council that would decree what's ethically sound, what can go on the site, what cannot. But update, like over the weekend he said, obviously I can choose who's on that content council and I don't need to listen to what they say. So at the end of the day, it's really Elon Musk's plaything. Like he gets to draw those lines and they are emotional, personal and arguably arbitrary. He's, he runs a dictatorship of Twitter now. Mm-hmm. which makes us question every day why we ethically can continue to use this platform. I'm still there, I have to say, but I'm engaging less and less. And I think what I say there sometimes is a direct counter to knowing what this environment is. It's like more and more the dissident voice. It's less yeah. cracking jokes and more actually like speaking up and saying, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. We're bin chickens. We live in the bin. Now the bin is on fire. We're dissident bin chickens now. (laughs) I used to think of Twitter as like this garden, right? And like every garden, you need to weed regularly in order to maintain what you want that experience to be. Blocking, muting people, dealing with pests that come up through the platform. That's just part and parcel of what the garden is. Now your garden is a junkyard. Well, I was about to say, now the soil is contaminated and it's carcinogenic and you have to wonder, do I want to stay in Get out, everybody. garden anymore? And as much as people are returning, plenty of people are leaving. Trent Reznor, formerly of Nine Inch Nails, he left Twitter quite publicly talking about the arrogance of the billionaire class. And he said that it's now a toxic environment and for his mental health, he just didn't need to be there anymore. And he called Musk's takeover an embarrassment. Musk very, very professionally and maturely called Reznor publicly a crybaby. But Reznor isn't alone. Stephen Fry, Whoopi Goldberg, Gigi Hadid, Amber Heard, Julian Casablanca, Jack White, they're all leaving or have announced they're going to leave. And meanwhile, Musk is just picking fights with a lot of them. Okay, on that note, I'm going to segue departures and returns because we need to also talk about the news that neighbours... Remember Neighbours, that little show? It was there for a while, Beverly. Well, it pulled up stakes and had a finale this year, just three months ago. Neighbours got dropped by its broadcaster in the UK, which set off this domino effect of the production company basically not having enough money to continue Mm. this show. Also add to that the rise of streaming services, a loss of audience on free-to-air television, etc., etc. Nail was in the coffin for Neighbours. Neighbours had by all accounts, a really fitting, nostalgic and good finale with celebrity cast members like Kylie Minogue coming back and zoom-ins from other celebrity cast members like Margot Robbie, Deltra Goodrum, Natalie Imbruglia. Everybody sold up and moved off of Ramsey Street. Mm. Toadie got married. And that finale garnered quite high ratings because of Mm. all the interest. And it seemed like Neighbours, after all these years, was given a really strong and proper and fitting goodbye. But now Amazon Prime here in Australia has basically said they're going to resurrect Neighbours in this Lazarus Act. So a new series is going to start filming next year. I've been really interested in the commentary around this. I mean, most of the actors from Neighbours seem overjoyed that they get to return to Ramsey Street. But I've noticed like there's a small pocket of actors who aren't particularly thrilled that their career plans after Neighbours was 
axed are now <laughs> in disarray. I guess it's good news for the Australian TV industry as well, because that was a lot of local jobs, actors, crew, script writers that was lost. And Neighbours was for a really long time an incubator for all sorts of talent. You know, a lot of Hollywood talent that has come out of Australia started in Neighbours. And a lot of the screenwriting talent that has gone on to write prestige drama in Australia and overseas also started in Neighbours. So we did lose something special there. I hear what you're saying. And I think this discussion has been had before about the good of Neighbours, what it did for the industry, but also some of the bad. We're not going to go over the dog eating stuff again. We've talked about it multiple times. (laughs) The dog eating stuff that happened in the 1990s where an Asian family was accused of eating a dog on Ramsey Street. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Just as a reminder. Okay. I just think reading this, I actually just feel like it's too soon. It's like when you meet up with somebody, you have a proper goodbye, and then you think you're going off in different directions, but you end up walking next to them, and you're like, oh, hi, yeah, bye, oh, hey, hey, we're still here, and it's awkward. This is mm. like that, but tenfold, because Neighbours had a very good long run. To come back so soon after you've put so much effort into a finale just feels, timing-wise, a little bit too fresh. It's like, why did they invest so much in the finale only to have everything overturned in three months and people are coming back? It just feels not quite right to me. And seeing the reports of former actors coming back to the show tells me that there's really no intention to give it a drastic reboot and refresh that say, let's look at the success of Heartbreak High over on Netflix, right? Like that was a show that didn't try to go back to that time. It was like, what can we do with this premise of a high school drama and bring it into now and find a new audience? I don't get the impression that that's what Neighbours is going to do. No, it's trading in nostalgia. I'm not excited by just a retread. I hear everything you're saying about the industry, but in terms of like making something interesting and good, that's not interesting. Well, I think it also reflects maybe Amazon Prime's commissioning priorities because when you think about when Amazon Prime launched here in Australia, one of the first originals that they launched was a reboot of Packed to the Rafters. So this was a very much beloved Channel 7 franchise slash Safe IP. choices, not interesting choices. Safe choices, that's right. And so I think they're appealing to an audience that wants the comfort of nostalgia and don't necessarily want to be challenged by something new. I mean, you could watch Neighbours reruns if that's what you wanted. Hmm. So that's a short and sharp on Neighbours. Mixed views. Clearly, I'm not a fan of the idea coming back. Ben, as someone who works in the industry, you see the benefits. And I'm not wanting to denigrate any of that because jobs are short in the screen industry. But there could be opportunities for new and better things. And jobs that help people create new and better things as well. It doesn't have to be a zero-sum game. Okay, Benjamin, that's Neighbours, The Resurrection. You can watch it and let me know how it goes, okay? That'll be your mm, homework. Yeah. I have to. <laughs> it's done. <laughs> I respect the show. It's not necessarily no, no, my you jam. Must. <laughs> Here's a new word alert. What is a Nepo baby? Not a Neopet. A Nepo baby. I was about to say, it sounds a lot like Neopets, the Nickelodeon social website where you fed like virtual pets. But Nepo baby is kind of what it sounds like, right? It's a combination of nepotism and baby, and there are a lot of them in the world. So when you think of the following people and what they have in common... The Nepo so- babies can be adults. Yes. Yes, they're mostly adults, just So to think clarify. of the following people and what they have in common. Zoe Kravitz, Lily Rose Depp, Dylan and Prince... Brosnan, I think maybe the family names might be giving away the game here. Willow and Jaden Smith, Miley Cyrus, 
they're all people who are born into Hollywood or American recording industry royalty. They've got very famous parents, and now they're famous themselves. So Nepo Baby is short for nepotism baby, in case mm-hmm. you weren't picking up what we were putting down. And it has entered the discourse, Benjamin, because people are now very concerned on social media and the like about the privilege that the offspring of privileged people inherently possess through being born into these families. And I think it's quite interesting because what's being examined at the current time is how these so-called Nepo babies speak and understand what it is that their privilege is, right? How aware of it? Are they accepting of it? Do they see the ways in which being born into a famous family helps you have a leg up in a hyper-competitive business like acting, modeling, just generally being rich and famous from the jump? I wonder how this has actually come into the spotlight because it really feels like the fact these people have very famous parents or family members is obviously hiding in plain sight. The phenomenon is not new. And I guess the critiques are even not new. You know, when people have links to very, very powerful family members, yeah, is it a meritocracy that they got there? People get their jobs from networks all the time. And in this instance, it's just very, very plainly obvious. Why has it flared up over the past week? I think maybe it's just Zoomer culture, TikTok culture, and just the way kids talk about things these days is very different from the way we talk about these things, Benjamin. As we've known before that you are a geriatric millennial, and I'm, you know, even older than a geriatric millennial. It's just a different way of talking. Like, just to play the devil's advocate for a second, like, I would say as a parent, and any parent who's raising children and working hard, you actually are actively always wanting to build a legacy, right, for your Mm -hmm. kids. Nobody wants their kid to struggle and have a hard time. If you can help your child in any way through education, through just being a good parent, through, like, connections, I think we all want that. No one's like... You're you're kind of talking about, like, maybe the migrant family experience, which is just like, Like, let's raise the kids to a different class and, you know, more social mobility that we didn't have. But if we get to a level as migrant people where we have privilege and we can pass that privilege on to our offspring, we're definitely not going to hold that back. That's what the ancestors want us to do. So I guess my point is, like you were saying, nepotism in general exists across lots of industries. I think about journalism. Think about how many intermarried nepo babies families are even in that one field. Yeah, in the arts and the media here in Australia. Think right. about those last names that keep recurring over and over again. The thing about these celebrity Nepo babies, I guess, is because they're coming up in a culture and they're working in industries, jobs, where the camera's always on them. It's magnified, it's amplified, and there's so much more attention on them because the children of actors are growing up to be actors. Guess what? Acting happens in front of a camera. Media attention is a necessary part of all of that profile building. Like you said, like, this is not new. So the question is, what does the culture want from the Nepo babies? What do we well, want to hear wants from them? them? to be aware of their privilege, essentially. Yeah. Right? So Lily Rose Depp, who's the 23-year-old daughter of Johnny Depp and Vanessa Paradisis, she's a model, right? So she's had to, like, speak about being a Nepo baby publicly and the vernacular of being a Nepo baby. But I can't imagine it's something that she hasn't thought of before. You know, there's a reason why she's in this industry as opposed to her colleagues who might not have those famous links. And as much as you'd think, well, Nepo babies, nepotism, wrong, wrong, wrong. Of course, like a lot of them are there if they're talented, right? You can't be a model without the looks. You can't be an actor without 
producing the goods. At the same time, maybe this is a nice antidote to the discourse which sometimes blows up the idea that a lot of people are hired in their jobs as diversity hires. It's kind of shining a spotlight on this idea that meritocracy does not necessarily exist unless other interventions are in place and you're actually breaking through nepotism. So much anxiety can be around diversity and inclusion. Like if we put a woman in the role, if we put someone from a non-English speaking background in the role, does that undermine meritocracy? And it's like, well, look at the whole phenomenon of nepo babies. Let's look at nepotism. Why hasn't that been framed as the problem all along? So there's a part of me that very much welcomes the Gen Z discourse. It might be blunt, It might be a little bit targeted to the individuals rather than the phenomenon, but it's putting a spotlight on the very real reality that in so many of the industries, it's about who you know rather than your inherent skill or talent. Right. It's kind of shining a light on the fact that maybe the celebrity industrial complex is an oligarchy. (laughs) Yeah. There's a dynastic aspect to it. And you know that saying you can't be what you cannot see. This Mm. is like the reflection of that. It's like, you can be it if you see it and you're born into it. Mm. And maybe that's what the Nepo Baby discourse is all about, is this realization that actually, hey, like you say, this is not a meritocracy. We're connecting the dots. Look at all these famous people who know other famous people. And it becomes so much easier, yes, if you are actually genetically blessed, because your parents are probably models and celebrities because they are very, very good looking. And guess what? You combine those genes and you probably get a very, very good looking child. I'm looking at you, Zoe Kravitz. You know. Oh, I thought you were about to say you're looking at me, Benjamin Law. <laughs> you're a very handsome man as well. But I think Zoe Kravitz, she is born of two of the most beautiful people who have ever walked planet Earth in, in the past, in the future, in the present. This is just a fact. And so for her to be a Nepo baby is kind of like, well, naturally. And her quote that it's completely normal for people to be in the family business it's true. It's just that Zoe Kravitz's family business is not house painting. It's being an actor. It's being a celebrity. It's being a musician. Seriously Red is an Australian feature film about Raylene, otherwise known as Red. She's a real estate valuer floundering her way through a nine to five job until she finds success as a Dolly Parton impersonator. You see what I did there? It's complete with a Kenny Rogers love story and some very beautiful Dolly costumes and wigs. Crew Boylan stars as Red. Boylan also wrote the screenplay and it features quite a big name cast. Celeste Barber, Rose Byrne, Bobby Cannavale, Wayne Blair, Gene Kitson. And it takes us into the world of celebrity tribute artists. I caught up with Crew Boylan to talk about the film ahead of its Australian cinema release. Crew Boylan, welcome to Stop Everything. Thank you so much for having me. Why don't we start with Dolly Parton? I think that is the best and most important place to start because uh, I love her. Your character Raylene, also known as Red, is a huge fan. I'd love to know what your relationship is to Dolly Parton's story and music. Well, I started writing the story because I was trying to figure out success. I didn't feel like I was getting success or all the work that I was putting in wasn't amounting to much. And I was an actress trying to figure out my way in this industry and where I belong. And so I started writing to figure that out. I had written for theatre before, but I started writing. I went to the writer's studio here up in Bronte in Sydney 
to figure out what success meant to me. I realized during that process very quickly that Dolly Parton was the epitome of success because she's a businesswoman. She's talented. She not only sings, but she writes, but she acts, but she also has Dollywood. She also has her imagination library. And obviously as the years gone on, she's now got her own vaccination almost. <laughs> yeah. And she's sort of the only person I feel like we can agree on almost globally. So I love her. I love her sense of humor. I love her business acumen. And I guess in my way, I feel like I can affiliate myself with her a little bit, which is very <laughs> bold of me to say that because I'm certainly not Dolly Parton. But I feel like I've got a bit of business acumen and I've got some talent and I've got an Australian sense of humor, which most of us do. So it was something about Dolly that I just was drawn to, to help me figure out why I wanted success. What was the catalyst for realizing, oh, Dolly Parton is my definition of career success to, hey, why don't I write a screenplay that incorporates Dolly Parton as a huge element of that? Well, I've also got a muse. I've got a girlfriend who I find endlessly entertaining. There's similarities between myself and her as well. And she's probably the antithesis of Dolly in many ways. She's not in the entertainment industry. And so I wanted to explore her as well. So I kind of took those two extremes and thought, right, I'm going to write a story of from going from this muse to this muse. I'm going to go from this Australian, funny, eccentric person who doesn't fit in to an American blonde country singer. <laughs> and I thought that was a great arc. And so I started there. That is a huge arc. You play Raylene or Red in the yeah. film. And as Dolly, she wears some amazing, bright and vibrant costume. She's got the wig, she's got the makeup, it's all going on. I wonder how different did it feel when you got into costume as Dolly? I felt really quite different in the fact that it just brought out confidence, sexuality, sassiness. There's something about dressing up as Dolly, for me, I'm sure people have that about different, as people are coming out to the movie and they're all dressed in their alter egos, which is awesome. <laughs> there is a great sense of freedom in exploring a different person being dressed up as them. It was so fun. When I met her, I was so conscious of all of those things of corsets or wigs or being little. And I kind of went, oh gosh, don't hug and kiss her too much. <laughs> but yeah, I felt a great strength in playing Dolly. She really made me crew as a person a little bit more confident, a little bit more sexy. Yeah, she left me with a few nice little gifts. Yeah, I think maybe that's the key to, to why it's so fantastic to be Dolly. I wonder if that's how she feels when she puts it on. You mentioned that you met Dolly. So I'm assuming she would have had to be approached and given that you admire her, you would have liked to get some kind of blessing or approval from her. What was that process like? How was that achieved? I've got this good chick called Rose Byrne. Might have heard of her. In my yes. back pocket. Have mm -hmm. you heard of her? Yeah. Have you heard of her? <laughs> yeah. So she's, so she's an executive producer on the film and she reached out to Dolly's manager, Danny Nozell. She was pregnant. She drove across two states 
with the script in her hand, gave it to Danny Nozell and said, this is a movie, this is a love project for us. We would love to get you and Dolly on board and would you read it and get back to us and see what you think. And Dolly read it twice that night and gave us our blessing. And from that day on, it just took us eight years to convince the rest of the world to help us make the film. So she's been a pivotal part of getting the film made. The film had its world premiere at South by Southwest, which is in a big film festival in Austin, Texas. We got a note from Danny saying, see you at stage door in 30 minutes. And I was in a wet cosy sitting on the bed in the hotel room. I looked at Jess Carrera, our lead producer, and went, what? <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> so we just threw on our clothes. We got to stage door. He also said, bring Kenny, which is Daniel Weber, who plays Kenny Rogers in the film. Bring Kenny. So I got to meet Dolly and I started to cry and I said, thank you for letting me share my story through your story. She just said, are you crying, Angel? And then started to wipe away my tears and she was just so gracious. She loved the film. She was like, we laughed. Oh, we laughed. <laughs> she was talking about when she watched it at her home with her DVD player. Of course, yeah. Which is pretty funny. Yeah, she was just nothing but joy. We talked about the music and we talked about how long it's taken and she was like holding my hands, jumping up and down, going, you played me. Well, you're beautiful. And I was like, oh. I was like, I did my best. Because <laughs> in the film I get quite raw. So, yeah, it was such a special half an hour to hang out with Dolly and share some stories. That's an incredible story, crew to be able to meet Dolly and I guess get her stamp of approval because that would have been really important. You don't want to make a movie all about Dolly Parton and then have her say, actually, no. Were you anxious at all? Like it could have gone many ways, I suppose. Yes. She had watched it say a month earlier than when I met her and then she tweeted about it and we'd also gotten her feedback. So I was relaxed knowing that she did love the film. She's starting to make a noise with social media about it even, which is kind and generous. And I was sort of worried that I wouldn't know what to say. But one of my girlfriends said, she's a professional. She will keep you at ease. You don't have to keep her at ease. She's got you. And so that was good advice. Yeah, definitely. The Kenny Rogers impersonator plays a big role in Seriously Red. Kenny Rogers died in 2020. Was he aware of the film before his death or did you work with the representatives from his estate and let them know that this film was coming out? What was that side of the communications like? Well, thankfully, he'd read it. He'd given us his blessing. And then, of course, he passed away. It meant the world to me that we got his blessing because we specifically went out to both of them saying, this is our film. We hope you love it. It's completely a love story to both of you. So that was everything. Hmm. Seriously Red takes us deep into the world of celebrity impersonators or tribute artists as they're known. What did you learn about that world crew and how seriously do tribute artists take their craft? I learned so much and they all have their own nuance, whether they are doing it just for fun or whether they're doing it for a profession, it's that extreme. So I went to Vegas and interviewed quite a few tribute acts. So there was a Steven Tyler impersonator and he just went, would you just look at me? What am I going to do with this face? And he's like, there's nothing else to do but do Steve Tyler because I look like him. 
So there was like that extreme of like you exactly look like the person. And then there's the people that don't look anything like them, but have this charisma and have the sound that they embody that famous celebrity or that artist so well that it still transcends. It doesn't matter if they don't look exactly like them. I think the most famous or the most recognized Elvis impersonator is Chinese. And what I love about it is it's not really about what they're doing on stage. It's how it's affecting the audience and tripping them back to their own sense memory of why they love that song. And when it comes to showing that world on film and writing it, representing it, staying true to it, how do you go about making sure that it's done with affection? Were you ever concerned that it might cross over into the line of mockery? We were really aware of that. That's not what the film is about. We don't want to mock or disempower. We really kind of want to support people in their different identities and mostly hope that everyone takes away from the film that they are tapping back into their identity and their little treasure box of an identity and how it has changed or shifted and and make sure that they're just being true to what it is today rather than what it was two years ago. That's the magic of film is that you can create a world and hopefully respect it enough and not to judge it for then people to take away what they want to take away from it. So it was really important, especially with the cast casting of Kenny, that we believe that Kenny and Dolly could have a love affair together, but that also Kenny isn't too sad. He's very happy to be Kenny. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. And Daniel Weber does a beautiful job of that. He's a beautiful character. We don't know that much about him and we don't want to make him too sad, but we also want to keep him complicated and interesting. There is such a big contrast between the kind of fantasy world of the celebrity impersonators in Seriously Red and then the grounded everyday life of Red and her family and friends. And your character, Red, she really feels like she's a failure at so-called real life but finds herself excelling at impersonation. I don't want to give the ending away, but were you ever tempted to write a trajectory that let Red's character remain at the top of her fantasy world with this new tribe of celebrity impersonator friends? I knew that I didn't want her to end there, but I did try it for other people. It felt like it changed the tone of the film and it felt like it was sort of trying to push into maybe a bit more of a Hollywood rom-com and that didn't feel true to the Australianness of it. Yes. It has, I think, some strong resonances with films like Muriel's Wedding. Yeah. Do you take that? 100%. And I loved that film and I loved Priscilla. At the time when I started writing, I was craving more of those types of films. And so I really wanted to try and steer clear of Australia being a third character in the film or, you know, a dusty outback, moody Australian film that I felt like I was digesting and digesting over and over again. And I was craving a bit of colour and a bit of the humour that we have. And I wanted to take a bit of glitter from Hollywood and take some cowboy boots from Nashville and throw it on top of what I love about Australia and Australians and our sense of humour. You've got a big cast in this film. Celeste Barber, Bobby Cannavale, Rose Byrne, as you mentioned, Wayne Blair, Jean Kitson. What was the secret to landing all these big talents, crew? I think it was the story that attracted the right people to this film. Unbeknownst to me, other people were having the same cravings. 
And so I know when Cassie Hanlon, who also did Priscilla Queen of the Desert, she did all the hair and makeup and the wigs. And when she read it, she was like, I have to do this film. Tim Chappell, who also did Priscilla Queen of the Desert, who did all the costumes, he also read it and went, I have to do this film. And Celeste Barber, her and I met on All Saints years ago and we've all wanted to work with her for years and, of course, since she's had such incredible success. But I knew she'd be perfect as teeth. And this is also Gracie Otto, our director, who had a great eye for casting as well. Rose Byrne helps when she's your best mate and also part of your production company. And it's also helpful that she's married to Bobby Carnavale. <laughs> that also helped. And Bobby read the script a while ago. His character was originally a different impersonator. And he said to Rose, you know, babe, babe, I could do this. But, you know, if Wilson was Neil Diamond. So he gave me that gift and I went away and went, I didn't really know that much about Neil Diamond. And so I went into a, like a deep dive of Neil Diamond's music and his looks and everything about his life. And it was such a gift. And I rewrote the whole thing for Bobby, hoping that Bobby would still say yes to do it. So that was easy. And it felt like it just attracted the right people. And I really underestimated how much fun all the different departments would have. It wasn't just like jeans and T-shirt. It was like, she's a Dolly Parton impersonator. That whole part of the film just exploded with all these really talented other artists who came in and just poured their whole life's career onto the character and all the costumes and hair. Kri, this is your first screenplay, and I know it was many years in the making. Yeah. Can you talk about the length of that process and what some of the struggles were along the way? The biggest struggle is, as a writer, getting up and writing and also getting feedback and sometimes the wrong feedback. They were the kind of the heaviest parts of the process of writing. Along the way, you have many people's ideas and thoughts and their own life experiences and what they think the film should be. And then you've really got to stick to what you want the film to be and also take on the criticism that what does need to be changed or what needs to be uplifted or characters that need to be cut. That's probably the hardest thing of writing is taking on all those things, knowing what to disregard and then picking yourself up, taking yourself to that cafe I've got a thing where I have to kind of dress up as whatever it is that I'm trying to write that day. If I'm trying to be sexy or if I'm trying to be mad and funny or if I'm trying to be serious, it all starts with what I put on. I guess that's the actress part of me. It gets me in the mood. And once I have a writer's block in that cafe, can't go back to that cafe. <laughs> I have to move on to another cafe. <laughs> so many cafes. <laughs> yes. And I've got to write in the morning. By three o'clock, I'm cooked, unless I start writing at 10 p.m. and then I can write until 3 a.m. And within that, I wish someone had told me that their rules are, there are no rules, and figure out your own different ways of getting yourself to do it. Because I'd read books where you get advice and people, you know what, it's, it's often men. You don't have to okay. whisper. <laughs> advice I'd gotten from different dudes of going, got to get up, you got to sit at the desk and you got to write. That makes me want to choke the monotony of that. And it took me a long time to figure out the way that I write is also creative. It's in a cafe, it's outfits, it's hats, it's jackets, it's different food, or it's a go somewhere else. And that is a constant changing piece of little artwork 
every time I'm writing, I'm reimagining and redoing that whole little trick. And I'd wish I'd known that. That's the sort of advice I'd give someone who is trying to write is really constantly knock back into what is best for you and what makes you bring out your own joy with your writing because it's not necessarily just sitting in front of the same desk at the same time every day hmm. at a bl- with a blank piece of paper. Well, now you know for number two. Yeah. What does it mean to you now to see Seriously Read as a fully realized feature film out in the world, knowing what you went through and all of the different costume changes and all the different cafes you went to? What does it feel like? Sweet, sweet relief. <laughs> relief is such an underestimated emotion. Like it feels so relieving and so good and so earned. That's something I didn't think that I would say or didn't think I'd be allowed to say. Yeah, to feel like you've earned something is really satisfying. And on top of that, it's excitement and is, yeah, I'm pretty chuffed and honoured if anyone goes and sees the film. Take a picture and Facebook it to me or Instagram it to me because I will be genuinely excited that you went and saw it. I hope it reaches and I hope, if anything, people just have a little bit of joy when they go to the film. I hope if they want to dress up, they want to go nude, they want to... <laughs> And then if anything, they remind themselves to be true to who they are, then my job is done. Well, congratulations on the film. Enjoy that well-earned feeling of sweet relief. Thank you. Crew Boylan is the star and the screenwriter of the Australian feature film Seriously Red. It's screened at South by Southwest, the Melbourne and Brisbane International Film Festivals and Sydney Film Festival. And it's in Australian theatres now. Check online for session times near you. Beverly, one of the shows that everyone's talking about at the moment is a spin-off of the Star Wars universe. And I've so wanted to watch it, but I feel so behind, which is why I was so thrilled when I heard you're all over I'm it. all over this, baby. And what you're all over is Andor. Diego Luna. To steal from the Empire? You just walk in like you belong. They're so proud of themselves. So fat and satisfied, they can't imagine that someone like me would ever get inside their house. Cassian Ander, the Empire is choking us so slowly. We're starting not to notice. What I'm asking is this. Wouldn't you rather give it all to something real? Tell you what, Cassian Andor is not a Nepo baby. No, he's our baby. <laughs> hey, Beverly, I'm familiar with the Star Wars franchise. I have not seen every spin off from what? this universe. No, I know. And there have been dare. so many, right? Like there have been Stop Solo, everything. there has been The Falcon and the Winter Soldier. No, there Falcon been, and like... the Winter Soldier's MCU. Stop. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> It's not part of the it's, same universe, Disney but it's all owns part of the all same. Of them, but yeah, Falcon exactly. and the Winter Soldier is MCU. Oh, it's the end of the year. My brain has melted. So, Beverly, the Star Wars universe just increasingly expands. There have been so many spin off films, and this is a spin off of a spin off 
because Rogue One was a spin-off of Star Wars and that was one of the more critically acclaimed Star Wars spin-offs because there have been some not as embraced Star Wars spin-offs yeah. like Solo, for instance, didn't really do well at the box office or with the critics. But Rogue One is really held to high acclaim and this reunites the original cast, is that right? Before we go further, I'm going to issue a huge, big spoiler alert for Andor. If you haven't watched the series yet, if you haven't caught up to the finale yet, you might want to go and watch that, catch up, and then come back to this conversation. Okay, just to set a bit of context here, Andor is a 12-episode series available on Disney Plus for streaming. Episodes have been released weekly since the series launched in September, and the finale was just released earlier this week on Wednesday. Season two has already begun filming, as we have strongly foregrounded Diego Luna is Cassian Andor. He's also an executive producer on the series. He was in Rogue One. The cast, let me just run through some of the names. His adoptive mother, Marva Andor, is played by none other than Killing Eve's Carolyn, a.k.a. Fiona Shaw. We like her. Stellan Skarsgård is the mysterious mastermind Luthan. Forrest Whitaker returns from Rogue One as Saw Gerrera. We even get a casting from another hit show of 2022, The Bear. Remember Cousin Richie? Um. Yes, the actor Ebon Moss-Bakrak has a brief role in Andor. Genevieve O'Reilly returns as the Chandrilin Senator Mon Mothma. And Benjamin Law, I want to give a special shout out to Andy Serkis, who plays prison inmate leader Kino Loy. And I hope to see him back in season two, because his turn as Kino Loy, I would say, surpasses Andy Serkis's performance as Gollum in Lord of the Rings. Well, Beverly, you and I have a mutual friend who really sees Andy Serkis as the pinnacle of acting. So you saying that is high praise. Does Andy Serkis actually appear here in human form or is he a CGI character with dots all over his face? He's in human form. He's acting what? with his full face and his full body. Is that body. even legal? He's got a magnificent head of hair. i got to say Andy Serkis, great hair. So I haven't started watching Andor yet, but I've been seeing the discourse around it. And one of the things that keeps being said about this show is that it has integrity as a drama in and of itself. You know, as much as it's part of the Star Wars universe, people are saying the acting, the writing is really on another level. But position where this show actually fits in in the universe for me because this is the Star Wars universe more specifically the Rogue One cast does it take place before or after the events of Rogue One okay strap in for Beverly Wang's attempt at a Star Wars timeline recount <laughs> this is difficult stuff usually when I'm watching anything Star Wars I'm watching with my husband who is like a walking Star Wars human encyclopedia. So I'm oh, constantly just always saying, so when does this take place again? Okay, which one Who and which movie? What is the order? So I've had to really do my own homework today because I don't have my human computer next to me. Here we go. So like you mentioned, Andor is a prequel to Rogue One, which came out in 2016. Oh, okay. it's a prequel to the cinematic event of Rogue One. Keep huh. in mind that Rogue One is itself a prequel to Star Wars A New Hope from 1977, which was the very first Star Wars movie made. Yeah, right. And takes place after the original prequels, but before the original, original sequels. Well, time really is bending. Andor is a prequel, prequel uh-huh. to A New Hope. A New Hope was when we met Luke and Leia 
and Han Solo and remember the hologram message from Leia hidden inside R2-D2 saying, Obi-Wan Kenobi, I need your help. And thus began the story as we know it. And it's difficult because the way the Star Wars movies have been produced, they hop backwards and forwards in time. Cassian Andor appears in Rogue One as a Rebel Alliance leader. What we're getting in Andor is the formation story of what made Cassian Andor Cassian Andor. And right. in parallel to that, the story of what coalesced into the Rebel Alliance. So in Andor, what we're seeing is a piecemeal alliance of various guerrilla groups who are anti-empire, but not collected into a political whole, a united force. I'm hearing that if you have seen, say, the original Star Wars franchise and the original three prequels, you could actually go straight into Andor, not having seen Rogue One, because Rogue One's actually the prequel, and what you're witnessing is not just the origin story of a character played by Diego Luna, who will be very, very important in Rogue One, but you're actually seeing the origin story of the Rebel Alliance. Yes, you are. You can always get into these movies at any point. They were made out of order. So there's already a whole discourse of what you should watch first. Do you mm -hmm. watch them in production order? Do you watch them in linear timeline order? We're not going to get into that debate. That debate could live outside of Stop Everything. What I will say about overall Andor, the whole series has been showing us piece by piece the depths of oppression. How miserable did people have to be in order for the rebellion to take place? And George Lucas stands might not be happy with me, but I say that George Lucas should be very grateful because what Andor does, what it builds on from Rogue One, is it actually gives the entire franchise now the emotional, political, kind of the mandate of why did the rebellion ever need to take place? Because things were this bad. And we see that through the prison industrial complex that the empire has in place and how dehumanizing it is. We also see how the empire works in a kind of minuscule day-to-day -day way by showing mm. the lives of the petty bureaucrats who enforce the oppression we begin to understand the reality of it. I was watching this show and I was thinking to myself, this could easily be a metaphor for a lot of political regimes we see in place today, be it China, be it Russia, these all powerful places where democracy and freedom of speech is not allowed to thrive. So what I'm hearing is this franchise, this story of Star Wars has always been about totalitarianism, fascism, arguably colonialism, but Andor makes you actually feel it and intimately understand the effects of those things. Yeah, I think in the other Star Wars films and some of the series, what we saw a lot of was the spectacle of fighting mm -hmm. and good versus evil. Early on when they staged that siege on Aldani, you know, even the way that siege takes place, it's messy. One final question, Beverly, a very important one as we talk about politics and totalitarian regimes. What are the costumes like? Because I'm always interested going from prequels that are made in a more modern era to then sequels where the hairstyles and the clothes are from the 70s. What's the costume and styling like? The costume and styling is on point. The contrast is great. So when we are in Mon Mothma's world of being a senator and we're in the Chandrillon State Apartments, everything is beautiful, clean, serene, symmetrical. And I suppose it's a note and possibly a critique. It's like, once again, we have white characters wearing very Asian-inspired costumes. So when I see the Chandrillon dress, I see Japanese kimono. 
I see Korean hanbok. I see a lot of Asian influence. The architecture of those apartments are very Asian. And Star Wars does have a record of taking from non-white cultures and then clothing their white characters in that. We see these beautiful, pristine spaces, but also with an air of oppression. That is a gilded prison that Mon Mothma lives in. And then we go to Ferrix, and it's kind of like one of the engine rooms of the Empire. It's a very industrial port. The grittiness and the earthy color palette There's a huge contrast there. And I think also what's interesting and is another corrective to the world that George Lucas built is the huge number of female characters on both the side of the empire and both on the side of the rebellion. And we see how instrumental females are in the formation of this. I think we got Princess Leia for a long time in the films, and she was the sole representative. But we are seeing now in the birth of the rebellion, the roles that so many people played. Uh, And I think we have to really give credit to the creator, Tony Gilroy. Tony Gilroy should be a familiar name because not only did he write the Bourne films, he also co-wrote Rogue One. All of this gives heft to the stakes at play, which I think sometimes are missing in these meandering shows like Obi-Wan Kenobi, The Mandalorian, The Book of Boba Fett, some of the Star Wars films where we see the spectacle, the battle, the costumes, the droids, the aliens, and we see people fighting, but we don't understand the weight of the fighting, whereas in Andor we truly do. To actually feel and care. Well, I'm looking forward to and or I'm looking forward to the expansion of characters that we usually get only a glimpse of in other Star Wars films. That's Andor and it's available on Disney+. Plus. In the meantime, you can always follow us on the ABC Listen app. Search for Stop Everything in the app. You can also ask your smart speaker to play the latest episode of Stop Everything. We love digital media and being online. Thank you to producer Sarah Mashman and our sound engineer Brendan O'Neill. Stop Everything is produced on the lands of the Eora and Kulin Nations and on the land of the Muwanina people from country around Nipaluna. We will catch you next week. Hey, stop everything, listeners. I'm Ann Jones, and I know you're here for celebrities and pop culture updates, but I've got to let you know about my podcast called What the Duck. It's pretty much the same thing, but for the natural world. Each week, I cover topics like, why are penguins so promiscuous? I mean, we all love gossip. Do big bad wolves really deserve their reputation? A bit of true crime discovery? And do birds actually fart? Follow What the Duck with me, Anne Jones, for some entertaining nature stories. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.